So before we begin, just want to know if anybody has any uh, comments about last week's discussion class. Anybody? Or are we all good to go? Ready to move on? Huh? Ready to move on, okay. All right, we want to thank, uh, thank Luba for her tea. For warming our hearts and warming our kishkis before we warm our souls with the Torah. And thank Diana and uh, who? What was the other Peggy. one? Peggy. Peggy. For joining Joan in the class tonight. And thanks everybody for coming out on this cold and dark wintry night. Let's see if we can't bring a little warmth and light to this situation. So first of all, I want to begin with a little historical joke. So there was a, once a press conference of, around President Lincoln, all of us and uh, the uh, reporters apparently see nothing has really changed over the last uh, over 100 years. Thank you. The reporters were shouting and yelling at him, questioning him, challenging him. And the president said, gentlemen, gentlemen, let, let me tell you a story, he said. Once upon a time, there was a, a wagon driver, a balagula. He didn't say balagula, but he said a wagon driver. And the guy was driving through a big thunderstorm and the wagon went off the road and it got stuck in the, in the, in the rut, in the ditch in the side of the road, in the mud. So the poor driver has to climb down and get him, climb into the, all of the dirt and all the mud and he has to try to get the wheel unstuck and he has to try to help the horses and he can't see what he's doing because it was a cold, dark night and he couldn't see what he was doing. And every once in a while, there would be a flash of lightning and a big crash of thunder. And when the lightning flashed, then he was able to see for just, for just a few seconds, he was able to see what he's doing. But it wasn't enough and he couldn't do it. So he turns to heaven and he says, God Almighty, a little less noise and a little more light. <laughs> he turns to the reporters, he says, gentlemen, a little less noise, and a little more light. So uh, on these cold nights, we need a little bit more light. So let's see if we can, we can get it. So here's the uh, line of the night, okay? The line of the night, the one-liner of the night is Chabad, comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable since 1776. <laughs> Good? So uh, it's very hard to pinpoint the exact year that Chabad started, but it's, it's safe to say 1776 is a good number because um, 1776 is the year that the founder of Chabad started writing his big magnum opus, the big book of Tanya, which is the philosophical uh, text of Chabad. So 1776 is a good year because it's uh, the same year that another very important document was written and signed. So we go with 1776. And what's Chabad been doing? Comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable. Okay, that's tonight's line. And then uh, we'll circle back to that at the, end of, at the end of the class. Let's go, page 58. 58? Yeah. Moving right along. <laughs> Did I miss one? <laughs> mm, nope, we missed one. We didn't do the first one. I mean, we started with the second week. That's why I told Jones last week, don't feel bad. You didn't miss two, two weeks. You only missed one week. Because we missed the first week. 58. Yeah? Page 58. Okay. The Orchard Inn. The Orchard Inn. There you go. Okay. 
So the Parsha this week is Parsha's Vayera. Uh, last week we learned about Avraham and Sarah and their journeys. This week we are focusing in on Avraham and Sarah's in. Avraham and Sarah introduced to the world, besides monotheism, they also introduced the concept or reintroduced the concept of hospitality. You know, everybody knows this, uh, the cities of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is in this week's Torah portion, one of the highlights of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and why God hated them so much is because hospitality was prohibited. Hospitality was against the law. If you didn't have a place to stay, that was your problem. That was a you problem, not a me problem. And the idea of expecting people to share their space or to share their wealth or to share their resources was illegal. You could not make anybody share anything because sharing was not caring. And so the, in uh, Sodom, there was no in no hotel, nowhere, nowhere to have a meal and nowhere to, to stay. And that's why you find an interesting thing, that when the angels came to destroy the city and they went to save Lot, Abraham's nephew, Lot said, please stay, stay in my house. And they declined at first and they said, no, it's okay. And what the Torah says, it's okay, we're not going to stay with you, we're going to sleep in the street. Now, usually if uh, you know, someone invites you to come to the house and you don't want to, you say, it's like, oh, I'm going to hotel. But there were no hotels. So they said, no, it's okay, we'll sleep in the street. Eventually he prevailed on them, but from that alone you can already see that the hospitality was illegal. Abraham and Sarah were revolutionaries, not only in their belief in God, but their belief in one God led so many other beliefs. Like, for example, the belief in the essential value of sharing what you have with others, and which led to hospitality. So they literally opened a hospitality center where they would feed people. They lived in a, in a desert uh, near Beersheba and they would feed people that were passing by and they would give them a place to relax and a place to drink and a place to eat. So let's read the uh, source in the Torah on page 58, the text 1.8, where it says, 1a, Abraham planted an Eishel in the city of Beersheba and there Abraham called out in the name of God, the God of the world, the everlasting God. What is an Eishel? What did they, what did they plant? What did they set up in Beersheba? The Torah says an Eishel. So if you look in the next text, there's a discussion in the Talmud or in the Medrash, what is an Eishel? So it says, and he planted an Eishel in Beersheba. Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nechemia disagreed over the translation of the word. Rabbi Yehuda said an Eishel is an orchard. You would ask for anything you wanted, dates, grapes, or pomegranates, and they would give it to you. Abraham and Sarah would give it to you. Rabbi Nehemiah said, an Eishel is an inn. You ask for anything you want, bread, meat, wine, eggs, they were serving full meals, not just snacks. So according to both opinions, they were serving food to people that were in need, people who were, tra- who were tra- traveling. And if you look on the next page, it says that Eishel, the word Eishel actually is an acronym that stands for the Hebrew words Achila, Shetia, Levia, which means Achila, food, Shetia, drink, and Levia, accompaniment. They would, if you came by, they would give you food, they'd give you drink, and then they'd help escort you along the way a little bit to send you off on your, to continue your journey. So Abraham and Sarah literally were providing this service to the public. Rabbi, was, was, the, was sharing, you, you, you said it was illegal, but uh, could people share if they wanted to, or was that against the law? 
No, it was against the law. In the city of Sodom, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The reason why it was illegal? Just their morality. Let me, let me tell you a story to answer that question. Yeah, was their immorality? Yes, I know that it was immorality. Yeah, well, that was their immorality. Their immorality was that they believed that the expectation that I should share with you is immoral, is perverse. If you don't have, it's your fault. You should work harder. But there should be no guilt placed on anybody because they're not sharing. If I, if I worked hard and I earned, then it's mine. This idea that I should give charity, that I should give you part of my place to stay, so they said it's, uh, it's corruption. So let me just tell you a story to illustrate this. In the, those who are here from the former Soviet Union surely recognize the name of a city called Berdichev. Berdichev was once the home of one of the greatest leaders of the Hasidic uh, community in history. His name was Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. And people, he's so famous, people just call him the Berdichever, meaning the rabbi of Berdichev. And he was beloved, he was a, a, he was a leading scholar and a, and a rabbi and a and above all, he loved people, and people loved him. And so uh, one time, the city council came to the rabbi, and they said, we want you to be the president of our city council. This was obviously this was a, a Jewish community council. And he said, Ereftov, and he said to them, I have no time. I'm the Av Bet Din. He was the head of the Bet Din, the head of the, of the Jewish court. And he was also an author, he was writing books, he was writing, responding to inquiries via mail, and he was very busy, and he was the Rebbe of the Hasidic community too. And he said, I have no time to come to community council meetings, but I'll tell you what, um, I'll have time for you, anytime you want to enact a new law, a new ordinance, um, I will ha- I'm happy for you to come and we can discuss it together, okay? But the regular ongoing business of running the community... I'm sorry, I don't have time. So they said, okay, Rebbe, thank you so much. We'll come to you with new proposals. One time they came to him with a proposal and he says, what's the new proposal? They said, the panhandlers are driving people crazy. The schnorrers are driving everybody nuts. The begging, the begging, wherever you go, there's somebody begging for money. So what we decided is that we're going to outlaw begging. We're going to set up an office where people will donate to the office, and then people who want money should come to the office. And that way, the citizens, the civilians, will not be bothered by the constant begging. So, Rebbe, is that okay? So he looked at them with a big glare, and he says to them, But I said only new laws. They said, this is a new law, we've never had this before. He says, you've never had it before, but Sodom and Gomorrah had this law, it's an old law. (laughs) Well, they left. People shouldn't be bothered, people shouldn't be bothered, the rich shouldn't be bothered by the poor, the haves shouldn't be bothered by the have-nots. That was the attitude in Sodom, in Sodom. You don't have? Go knock yourself out, figure it out. Don't bother me, I, I have. Anyway, so the point is to just to illustrate that, that Abraham and Sarah uh, were revolutionaries not only on a religious level, but even on a civil level. And that's why I recommend everybody to read a book called The Gift of the Jews by a man named Thomas Cahill, who uh, really illustrates, he's not, and he's not Jewish, really illustrates very well how Abraham was the, uh, pro, was the proponent of all modern civilization, everything that we love 
about modern civilization, Abraham and Sarah are the ones who deserve the credit, not only for Jewish religion or monotheism, but and hospitality is a perfect example. We take it for granted. But then it wasn't something that was taken for granted. So now, what did Abraham and Sarah do with the guests? So you look on page 61. I'm skipping a few of the text because we are bound by time. Page 61, uh, the, um, the Talmud says, what does it mean when it says that he had people coming and he was hosting people in Beersheba and he called out in the name of God, the everlasting God? So Reish Lakish, one of the rabbis says, don't, don't read it as he called out in the name of God, but rather he caused others to call out in the name of God. Meaning that Abraham taught every traveler who came in to speak about God, to thank God, to think about God. This is what he did in addition to giving them food and drink. He also would educate them that they should believe and understand that there is a, that there is a one invisible omnipotent God. And how... How did he do this? After they had eaten, they would get up to thank him, and he would say to them, you didn't eat my food, you ate the food that belongs to the God of the world. So if you want to thank anyone, thank and praise God, who spoke the world into existence. Next page, if the traveler would agree to thank God, they would eat, drink, and leave. And if they would not agree to thank God, then Avram would say to them, okay, pay up for your meal. And the traveler would say, okay, what do I owe you? And Abraham would say, well, a measure of wine, 10 coins, a measure of meat, 10 coins, a measure of bread, 10 coins. And they would say, well, that's a very expensive, you know, Jerry Seinfeld has his joke about the cost of food in airports. For some reason, tuna must be very rare, right? Tuna sandwich, $24. Everywhere else, it's five bucks, but in the airport, $24. Tuna's very rare around here. In Abraham's uh, tent, it was like the, the cost of food was like the cost in an airport. It was so expensive. And people would say to him, why so expensive? And he would say, what do you mean? You're in a desert. Where else are you going to get food and drink? And they said, okay. And then when they would say that there's no way out, the traveler would say, all right, I bless God of the world whose food we ate. Or in modern, in the modern lingo, rub-a-dub-a-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God, yay God. So when, when they would be faced with this big bill, they'd be handed this big bill, and then they would say, all right, okay, you know, twisting my arm, okay, I'll say it, Baruch Hashem, thank God. So uh, this is how Abraham and Sarah educated people with a very basic recognition that after you eat, you have to thank God whose food it is. Now, I mean, this is a very obvious question. The Talmud says that, that God, when Abraham died, that God thanked Abraham for having made God uh, known. Because before Abraham... People, literally, people didn't know about God. They knew about, uh, you know, this getchke, this idol, that idol. But they didn't know about the concept of a God, yeah. I have a question about that, because I was thinking about that a lot uh, yeah. earlier. If uh, God made Adam in his own image, yeah. and he had a relationship with Adam and Eve, and he gave them rules, and they didn't follow and kicked him out... So somebody knew about God because Abraham came way after that. So, 
every time I hear this and saying that they, Abraham, you know, started the relationship with God, it kind of, I don't know, you get where I'm saying? A hundred percent. Okay. hundred percent. Uh, so just a few historical tidbits. First of all, Abraham studied directly from Noah. Abraham and Noah lived together for a certain, lived, in other words, walked the earth together for, I believe, 58 years. I thought Noah was like 900 or right. something crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Abraham, Noah was like the last yeah. of the Mohicans because the yeah. flood shrank everything and shortened life. Yeah. Everything went back, everything went to normal the way we know it now. So yeah, they, I think they walked the earth together for 58 years, if I'm not mistaken. And Abraham learned about God, studied about God from Abraham. So it, it wasn't totally lost in the, in the population, in the world population. But the, the Maimonides mm-hmm. describes the historic progression that led to idolatry. Because exactly as you're pointing out, idolatry is not something that can just spring up in society. A society that was created by God and knew God and, and Noah communicated with God. What happened to the idea of God? You can't just wake up one morning and say, okay, we're, we're going to ignore God and we're going to build our own. Yeah. So the Ram, Maimonides explains in a very beautiful description about how it started off very innocently. It started off with a desire to have representations of God. Where people got sick and tired of trusting and believing in an invisible God, but they believed in God, but they wanted representations of this God. And, they, and not only that, they wanted to respect and honor those creations that most represented God already. For instance, the sun that warms and, and, and illuminates the whole world, and the moon, and all of the, all of the super creations. So they wanted to honor God by honoring his representatives. And that started off very innocently as a, as a means to get closer to God. Let's build ourselves something to remind us of him. Let's build ourselves something that will help us feel close to him. Let's, uh, let's not only pray to him, let's pray to the greatest, cre- greatest of his uh, um, uh, uh, deputies, his creations, his, his biggest, um, highest ranking officers, so to speak. And so that's how it began, but of course, it never ends. If you deviate from the truth a little bit, you know, and you think that that's, it's going to be okay, your children, they don't understand that. And then they deviate a little bit, and then their children deviate, and then by the time you get to the fourth, fifth generation, it's gone. The original, the original truth is gone. And so Maimonides describes how in the days of Enosh, Enoch, uh, no, not Enoch, Enosh, they started this, this uh, slippery slope. And eventually, a few generations later, God was completely lost to the world. Uh, besides for the few uh, select individuals like Noah and Abraham, but Noah had no influence on the world around him. As we know, that's why there was a big flood and everybody died besides him, because he couldn't influence anybody. He couldn't teach anybody for whatever reason. But Abraham who discovered God on his own and then studied more and followed up on that information with Noah, went and made it his mission to teach the world about God. So after a break of about a thousand years, God was reintroduced into society by Abraham, into a society that when nobody understood it. It's, it's, it's very interesting. I'm not sure if it was in Cahill's book or in somebody else's book, 
where it says that Abraham was the, was the most famous atheist of his time. Because he didn't believe in the gods. In other words, people looked at him, they were like, who, who is this? Who is this Oisvarf? Who is this guy that doesn't believe in the gods? He was the atheist. And he's telling them, you guys are not respecting God. They said, we're not respecting God. We respect so many gods, you wouldn't believe it. My father told me, he got pulled over for rolling through a stop sign. The cop pulls him over, comes over to his window, and says, you know why I pulled you over? Because you rolled through the sign. You have a problem following rules? (laughs) My father says, in your life, you wouldn't believe how many rules I follow. This this one I happen to have rolled through, but man, I follow so many rules. So they said, we're the atheists. Do you have any idea how many gods we're worshiping just today? And tomorrow is going to be more. And so Abraham had to explain to the world this idea. So that, it was like lost knowledge. Yeah, it was a lost knowledge and he had, to, he had to re-educate. And this was one of his methods was that when people would come and he would help them with a physical need. And when they would want to thank him, he would say, no, 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 no. If you're grateful, thank God. Don't thank me. Really thank God. If anybody needs more hot water in that uh, kettle, there is boiling water. Thank you, Luba. This is on a night like tonight. This is mamish a matter of life and death. This cold, <laughs> this hot tea. But thank you very much. So the question, the obvious question is, what is the value? And you say that God thanked Abraham for reintroducing him to society. But did he really introduce him to society? What did he do? He, he bribed people to, to, to believe in God. Basically, he's bribing them to say, thank God. He's saying, I will give you this expensive meal on the house if you'll just say, thank God. So what is he? You know the old joke, there's two Jews both having uh, you know, problems making a living. They're walking along. And they see on the window of a church, it says, if you convert, you become one of us. We give you $500, right? So one of them says to the other, what do you think? He goes, what do I think? I'm going, I'm going, 500 bucks. Ain't Kleinekite, I'm going. I don't believe in nothing, but I'm going to go. I need the money. He goes inside, his friend waits outside. He comes out 20 minutes later. He says, what happened? He says, what do you mean, what happened? I converted. I'm, a, I'm, 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 one, I'm one of them. He goes, and? He goes, what do you mean, And? <laughs> He goes, and? Did they give you the money? He goes, that's all you Jews think about is money. <laughs> yeah, I would have thought how many times you convert. <laughs> right. All you Jews think about is money. So what's the point? You pay a guy 500 bucks and he, be, and he joins your religion. So what did you accomplish over here? So seriously, what did Avram accomplish over here? The, the fact is that he accomplished uh, a world of a difference and we are the result and the fact is that God congratulated him and thanked him, so obviously he accomplished a lot. The question is, what is this methodology? And how did it work? Yeah. Yeah, but just as something. Yeah. Because where Abraham and Sarah gave to the people food, drink, accomplish, you know, all the other things to eat, the physical things from the body. But when, what he asked for them was something from their neshama, from their heart and soul. Thank God. He's not saying, here, give me a dollar, give me a nickel, go work on my field, fix my fence. He's not saying that. He's saying something for their mind, for something spiritual. Mm -hmm. And if somebody does that because he wants to save the the money on the bill, in other words, it's not that he was moved 
by Abraham's uh, persuasion or by Abraham's explanation is just that he wants to not pay the money for the meal. So he it's says, okay, start. Like, it's a start. It's a start. Apparently, it's, it's a start. Yeah. You're, you're, you're right. You know, um, the, the, what Stephen is saying reminds me of a very, a very sweet story about a, a certain chassid that went to his Debe and said that he had a business thing, that one last business hope that fell through, and now he's got nothing. And he's, uh, you know, he's having real problems, and he's asking the Debe for help. So the Debe said to him, I have a younger brother, no, an adult, but a younger brother, and I want you to go, and I want you to ask him to help you. The Rebbe says, you got to go. So he goes to the younger brother, and he says to him that your brother, the Rebbe, told me to come to ask you to help me. So the brother says, okay, no problem. Uh, it's Friday, so tonight, during my Friday night prayers, I'm going to say special prayers for you to have more success and to, and to uh, prosper. So the Yechassid went back to the Rebbe and said, I just want to report to you, I went to your brother, and your brother is going to pray for me tonight. So he said, go back to my brother and tell him that that's not enough. Hmm. He went back to the brother, and this was a few times, the brother said, okay, I'll pray for you tomorrow morning also, tomorrow afternoon also, tomorrow night during Havdalah also. And finally, the Rebbe says, go back and tell my brother that I want to see him. So the brother comes, and the Rebbe says to his brother, what are you doing? This guy's coming to you for help. And what are you doing for him? He goes, what do you mean? I, I'm doing a daven for him. I'm going to intercede with God for him. He, he says, but that's not enough. He said, what should I do? He says, come, I'll show you what you should do. And he took his brother and he walked around the village and knocked on every door and asked for assistance for this Jew, for this poor guy to try to get back on his feet. He said, that's what you should do. And the depth of the story is that before you can do somebody a a favor, an intangible, do them a favor that is tangible. You know, the the old expression, which is taken as a joke, the quickest way to a Jewish heart is through the stomach. Exactly. The quickest way to a Jewish heart is through the stomach. Avram Avinu understood this truth. You cannot appeal to a person's finer senses until you take care of his immediate needs. You can't take a guy off, this, off the, this, the street in the desert. Guy is hungry and tired and cranky. And by the way, this is a, this is a lesson in, in child raising and education in general. Don't try to reach some deeper place in the person's heart before you take care of their immediate needs. We find that Mo, Moses, at the end of his life, he let it rip with a 37-day um, sermon for the ages, right? That was the last 37 days of his life is the entire fifth book of the Torah, the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, where he, where he admonishes the Jewish people about the mistakes of the past over the last 40 years and how much he loves them and how much he expects of them and how much loyalty they owe God and how the future has to, they have to be good in the future. But all this admonishment begins with an introduction where he says, I have brought you this far. Moses brought them to the, to the brink. Moses brought them to the threshold of the promised land. All the way from Egypt, for 40 years, he fought giants for them, and he split the sea for them, and he brought them bread from the sky. So he starts off and he says, I have brought you this far. In other words, he doesn't want people resenting. He said, oh, Moses wants us to shape up. Moses wants us to become better people. But what has he done for me lately? 
You can't appeal to a person's neshama until you appeal to his hunger, to a little, give him a, give him a, give him a nice story, give him a nice song, a little music, a little, a little ambiance, a little something to whet the appetite. Then, when the neshama starts hungering, then you can start feeding spirituality. But you can't just go to a hungry person and say, I'm going to pray for you. He's hungry. He don't need your prayer. Okay, one more story, then we're going to keep going. Yeah. Is there anything wrong with a little kvetching for 40 years to go to a border state, Israel and Egypt? And even if there was a little bit of distance, it's, it's very, very, I mean, it's right there. 40 years. I mean, I, what's wrong with a little, you know? No, nothing wrong. Okay. Nothing wrong. <laughs> anyway, the Torah skips everything else that happened over 40 years and only talks about our kvetching. As if that's all we did for 40 years. By the way, I think about it all the time because the story of Joseph and his brothers features a trip from Israel to Egypt, back to Israel, back to Egypt, back to Israel, back to Egypt. A few times, right? The brothers go down to Egypt and then they go back and then they go back. It's the same trip. Why did that one take 40 years? Because he wouldn't ask for directions. That's why. That's right. One more story, then we'll keep going. Moshe... Uh, and, uh, and uh, Gittel are married, and, um, and Gittel makes the worst food on the earth. And Moshe, for all these years, he's tolerating it, and finally he runs out of patience. He can't deal with it anymore. The food is, in, is in, in, not palatable. He can't, not one more day he can't do it. And the problem is that his wife is such a good, she's such a sweetheart. She stands over her food before she serves it. Every day she stands over it, and she puts her hands over the pot, and she says a prayer. And then she brings it to him, and him being such a good husband, he says, mm, delicious. She says, it's because of my davening. It's because of my prayers. That's why the food is so good. And he goes, yeah, 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 100%. So anyways, one day he says, Genug, I can't anymore. He goes into the kitchen when she's not looking, and he seasons the food. And, and then she brings it, and he can't hold himself back. He goes, oh, get today the food is really, really good. And she says, of course, my darling, it's because of my prayers. And he goes, yes. He says, your prayers and my good deeds together made a good supper. You know, prayers are good. Good deeds are better. So, so it's true that Avram, Avram and Sarah, they're giving something tangible, and then they're asking for something intangible. The question is about this bribe. And there's depth here. This idea of saying to the people, if you don't daven, if you don't say thank God, then you have to pay me. Not because he wanted the money, but because he wanted them to pray. So then they would say, oh, okay, we'll pray. And he would say, good. What's, what, was, what is this all about? How, how, and what can we learn about how to bribe others or ourselves to do the right thing? So let's keep... Yeah. He bribed them. If it's not from the heart, does it not? That's my question. Yeah. That's exactly the question. If you, if you bribe them and it's not from the heart, so then what exactly did you accomplish? And how does God thank him for spreading godliness in the world if it was just uh, to get him off their back? I, I disagree. Because I've like, heard to go to temple and a kid, they may not want to go. You bribe them, you do whatever, and that, you know what I mean? Just by being there, things sometimes yeah. soak in. And yeah. yeah, exactly. So this is the question. What is the difference between bribing a child to do the right thing, and it's not always bribery. Sometimes yes. it's with an offer that you can't refuse. You know, if you do the wrong thing, then you're going to happen, you're going to happen, 
you're gonna get a you're gonna get a spanking, um, or you're gonna get a reward if you do the right thing. What are we doing? Why don't we just why don't we just wait for the child to do the right thing for the right reason? And of course, it's a silly question. We don't do that. We don't do that. What? But you're doing something else. Because you ask, you know, what is it that they're doing when he says, say a prayer. They don't even know what the word prayer means. You're lighting a candle. You're trying to get something in their mind. Yeah, so you're, so you're, you're saying that it's a good first step. It's a, fir- it's it's a good first, first step. step. Huh? It's but it's something that they didn't even think about before. Yep. What were you going to say? Wait a minute. How many years has this question been bothering you? <laughs> many years. I was uh, 10 years old. And you want me to put it to rest right now? What a shame that would be. This is a tradition for you. Why would we want to do that? This defines you. Let's leave it alone. It's between you and your dad. I'm not going to get in between. I understand. What hit you? When he says you don't separate yourself, that's, those, are the, those are the key words. Mm-hmm. You don't separate yourself, and he's right. If you want to pray at a, at a better pace, you wait till the services are over, and then you daven. Yeah, and by the way, I'm sure you all, or many of you, remember that that's exactly what my father-in-law used to do. He never davened with us. He was always there. He was there through the whole davening, but he never davened with us because we davened way too fast. And he, <laughs> he was a great rabbi. He didn't like to daven fast, not because he couldn't read that quick, but because that's not the way he liked to daven. But he would never miss the crowd. He would sit there and he would participate. And he would answer Amen and he would read the Torah. And whenever, and then after, and then he would sit at the kiddush, fabreng, say lachayim. And then when everybody left, he would go right here to his little corner and daven for the rest of Shabbos afternoon. So that was your. I think that was the point because there's a question that I've been. But remember this, Joan. Questions are always better than answers because questions keep you up at night, answers put you to sleep. And being, and being up at night is much more Jewish. So I don't want this answer to put you to sleep. So uh, please struggle with this question a little bit more. Okay. Oh, okay, good, good. We're happy to hear Woe to the person who has no questions. As we say in the Passover Haggadah, the fourth child who has no questions, get him to ask a question, right? At Ptachlo. You get to figure out a way. You can't just sit there and have no questions. Not Jewish. Okay. So um, let's talk about this uh, idea of, of, of compelling, bribing, forcing, threatening children to do the right thing. And this is something which really requires serious thought. What gives us the right to force children to do anything? Excuse me, because that, because that question is the key to can you do the same thing with an adult? Of course, with an adult, Avram's not threatening them. But it's the same idea. 
You tell a kid, if you don't clean up your room, I'm going to ground you. Ooh. Tell him that the right thing to do is to clean up his room, and if he wants to do it, he'll do it. If he doesn't want to do it, he won't do it. But for some reason, parenting doesn't work that way. No one's expected to do that. And if you do that, you're called a bad parent. Okay, now with adults, what about an adult whose knowledge of a certain moral or of a certain value is on a childlike level? What about an adult who has an immature or juvenile concept of right and wrong? Okay, are you allowed to... Are you allowed to Educate that adult with bribery or threats or compulsion. So the question is, what gives us the right to cause a child to cry, to cause a child misery, to cause our teenagers to hate us, or to say that they hate us, to cause ourselves misery, in order to force a child to follow a certain, a certain uh, value, even to the point that, in, that, in, that it's illegal to stay home from school. Truancy. It's illegal. You have to go to school. So you have to. Tell the kid it's important, and if you're good enough at explaining it, then the kid understands, and the kid will go to school. And if you can't explain it, and the kid doesn't get it, so then the kid won't go to school. You force the kid to go to school. And of course, these are rhetorical questions. Because yes, you force the kid to do the right thing. To a, to a, to a point. The question is, why is it that everybody agrees that it's okay to force children to do the right? Why is that? Why is it okay to force anybody you know, because at a certain point, parents force their children to do things that is not okay. You know, like you start like with the gray area. Eat what's on your plate. But I don't like it. Eat it anyway. Okay, now it's a little bit gray. Force children to eat food they don't like. Is that the same as forcing children to make their room, clean up their room, to apologize to a friend, to go to school? And then, you, and then there's more gray, and then it becomes abusive. So obviously, there is a natural inborn objection to forcing people to do what they don't want. Free choice is a God-given thing, and it's a sacred thing. But, but yet, when it comes to children, everybody unanimously agrees that there are certain things you must force children to do. You must force them to behave like a mensch. You must force them to keep clean. Children cannot be allowed to be filthy. Children have to be taught how to eat healthy. Children have to be taught to look both ways before they... Children are, can be forced and they can be deprived. A 15-year-old says, I want a license, and you can say no. You wait till you're 16. And so on and so forth. So what is the reason, the essential reason for why it's okay to force kids to do things that they don't want to do? Is this still rhetorical? No. <laughs> no. What is the reason why it's okay to force them to do what they don't want to do, what they're kicking and screaming and saying that they don't want to do? Yeah, it's because it's for their own good, which means, in other words, they do want to do it. They what? They do want to do it. They just don't know it. Mm-hmm. And that opens up a whole world of truth. That if there is something that somebody wants, and yet he doesn't know that he wants it, the correct thing to do is to try to influence him to wake up and realize that he wants it. And you know who does this all the time? Dentists. Dentists? Yeah. Yeah. Dentists, doctors. They will guilt you. They will threaten you. They will shame you. And they get away with it all. Go back to uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> what gives doctors carte blanche to, 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 to embarrass you? And they do. Because they're for your own good. Yeah. I remember I went to the doctor for an earache, a terrible earache. And this doctor looks in my ear, da-da-da. And then he says to me, 
you know, uh, I'm really not concerned about your ear. It's not going to kill you, but you have to lose weight. <laughs> I, and it's a perfect example. Who the hell are you? Did I ask you about my appearance, about my weight? None of your chazrush business. But of course, he gets away with it because he knows that I agree. He knows that I feel the same way. So if a doctor can do that and a dentist can do that and, and people can do that, then anyone who knows that somebody wants something but is out of touch with their own reality, then the moral thing to do is to figure out a way to get them to get in touch with the fact that they want it. The immoral thing to do is to say, okay, I'm sorry, you don't want it? I'm sorry, suffer. No, you don't give up on people. You don't give up on people. So a child, when you tell the child, look, if you keep running around without your shoes, you are going to get such a splinter. And the kid, I don't care, I don't care. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't have any context. He has no context to say whether he cares, doesn't care, he has no experience, he doesn't know what a splinter is, and he doesn't know what it feels like, and he has no way of saying whether he does care or doesn't care. You do. And therefore, it's not that you're forcing him to do what he doesn't want. What you're doing is you're forcing him to do what he doesn't know that he wants. And that's why inevitably children grow up and they thank their parents for forcing me to do what I was too dumb to know that I wanted to do. And that is education. So if that's the way it is with children, and that's why it's only things that you know the child really wants that you're allowed to force. You can't force a child to do something because, because you're bigger. That is abuse. The only reason you're allowed to force a child to do something is because it is something that if the child would be, have a little bit more maturity, the child would agree that he wants it or she wants it. But if it's something that you want and you want to get your way and your child is giving you a hard time, you have no right to, to impose your will on another human being. What gives you the right? Because they're small? Because they're six? And you're, and you're 30? What gives you the right? Yeah. So is that your... Respo- your response, I think, is that that's why um, Abraham is saying, even with, I'll trade you what you owe me for this meal, yeah. to introduce you to God. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's doing this compulsion. He's doing this bribery because what, what Stephen is saying, that it's a good start. It's a good start, and it's also something more than that. It is what the person wants. It is what this person wants. This person wants to believe in God. I can't tell you, and I'm sure many of you have had the same experience. I can't tell you how many people, not, not everyone, but how many people have told me, Rabbi, I wish I could believe. I wish I had your faith. And they're not flattering anybody. They're being sincere. They wish that they had the faith that we have. They wish, they know that it's a source of great solace, that it's a source of great joy, that it's a source of great, uh, you know, it's, it's soothing. They know that it's a good thing. But if you were raised without it, it's like, literally like being raised with, a, with missing one of your five senses. It's not something that you can force on somebody. But it is something that you can, that you can inspire someone to realize how much they want it. How much they want it. How if they don't have it, they'll fill that need with other things that are junk. 
Literally like teaching a child, you want to be healthy, and therefore you have to eat healthy. Because if you don't eat healthy, your desire for healthy food, you will satisfy it with candy, and then you'll become unhealthy. Because you will feel that need. You will feel that need, no matter what, because you're a human being just like me. And you're going to want to be healthy, and you're not going to know what that need is, you're not going to know what you're feeling, and you're going to fill it with junk, and it's going to make you sick. So let me tell you what it is. You want healthy nutrition. That's what you want. You don't know that. You don't understand it now, but I'm telling you. That's what it is. So don't eat candy before supper. Kid, the kids, I don't care. I don't want, I want. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you're allowed to be mean. It doesn't mean you're allowed to be violent. None of it. It just means that you have to be kind and firm. Tough love. If you love the person, then you're tough with the person. If you don't love the person, then you're soft with them. Okay, you want to have junk food instead of supper? Go ahead, get sick. I don't care. It's not my problem. So now Avram, this pioneer, this revolutionary, this lover of people, above all, Avram was, was a man who embodied chesed, kindness and love, looks at people and he says to the people, can I explain you something? Your, your life is all over the place. You are all over the place because you believe in so many different gods and so many different things. You're torn in a million different directions. Can I tell you, there is a true God, and he explained to people, and most people accepted his explanations, no problem. But when a person is so materialistic, when a person is so caught up with their own, uh, own self-satisfying, uh, and that they refuse to even hear the concept that the world comes from somewhere, and there's a creator, so Avram says to himself, I need to figure, I have an obligation to figure out a way to get this person to recognize their own desire." So he doesn't force them because the food costs money. It's not like, it's not like he's uh, stealing money. On the contrary, he's giving the other people food for free. So, but what he does is, he does this very interesting and very precise move. What does he do? It's so, it's so interesting. He says to them, oh, you don't believe in God? Okay, no problem. That'll be $100. And they say, oh. And then they think to themselves, what, wait a minute. They think to themselves, wait a minute. The, the idea that the world may have a God doesn't move me. The idea that there may be a creator who made me who I'm ignoring doesn't move me. But the idea that I may have to part with $100, that moves me. That itself stirred them to say to Abraham, tell me about God again. Not, not simple, basic stinginess. That's not the depth of the story here. Because, because then Abraham could simply tell people, hey, say thank you to God and I'll give you money. But that's not what he was doing. He's, he is charging people money to make them realize on their own how shallow their values are, that they get what makes them nervous, the prospect of having to part with $100. And that made them think, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. Let me hear this thing about God again, about a higher value, about something more refined, about something deeper. Let me take, it a, let me take a second look. So a cynic would say, are you kidding? The guy doesn't want to give you 100 bucks, so he'll say Baruch Hashem and you get out of his life. But Abraham was not a cynic. And that's why he was successful. Let me, let me uh, tell you quickly a short story. The founder of Chabad that we talked about before, the author of the Altar, of Tanya, the Altar Rebbe, there's, there's a story about him, 
about how he was uh, going from town to town fundraising for a family that whose husband, the father was in debtor's prison. And he was trying to get them out. So he comes to this village and he says to the people in the village, I'm here collecting and would you show me around to the people of means? And they said yes. And he said, who lives in the, that house up on the hill? They said, that's a stingy guy. He doesn't give money away. He, he, anybody who asks him for donation, he gives a... Uh, a rusty penny, and that's all. So just don't waste your time. So the Alter Rebbe says, let's go to him. They go to him, and they explain the whole story. Alter Rebbe explains the story, and he says, here's a, here's a, here's a penny. Alter Rebbe says to him, thank you for your generosity, and he blesses him. And they leave, and the guy calls him, come, come back, come back, and he gives them more money. Back, and this happens a few times, until the guy paid for the whole amount. So the local rabbis, as they're leaving, said to the Alter Rebbe, what did you do, some kind of voodoo? Some kind of magic. The guy has never parted with more than a penny. What did you do? How did you get him to give the whole amount? I didn't do anything. The man obviously has a spark of generosity in him because he gives a penny. So whether it's a penny or a hundred dollars or a million dollars, it's giving. It's his penny. He's giving the penny to you. That means that there is some generosity there. There is a giving spirit there. So... All I did is I recognized that he has a giving spirit. And when I recognized his giving spirit, it, it, it moved that spirit to become a little bit more active. So he gave a little bit more. And then when I recognized it again, it nurtured it some more. And he gave more until he gave the whole thing. Because he can give. He does have generosity. It just needed to be massaged a little bit. But everybody who, who received that rusty penny from him, instead of... A, Focusing on the penny, focused on all the money that he did not give. And everyone would say to him, how could you be so cheap? How could you be so stingy when he just gave you something? Now, the Altarebbe wasn't mocking them. It's not easy when somebody thrusts their ugliness in your face. It's not easy to focus on the tiny little sliver of beauty that is there. Any teacher knows that. Any parent knows that. When a kid is acting, is acting awfully, and speaking disrespectfully, it takes the most gifted parent or teacher to push that all aside and notice the little glimmer of goodness that is there and massage it and massage it. And for it could take years until finally the child says, you know, thank you for not giving up on me because you noticed that little that little light inside of me. Which is what the Alter Rebbe did to the guy. Instead of recognizing the mountain of cheapness, he recognized the little tiny sliver of generosity. And so it grew. So Avram is not a cynic. A cynic notices everything negative and ignores the little silver lining. He ignores it. He says, that's a silver lining. The cloud is much bigger than the silver lining. So you'd have to be an idiot to get excited about the lining and not recognize how ugly the cloud is. Avram was not a cynic. Avram looked at the person and said, this person wants to believe in God. Every human being wants to believe in God. It's a human need. Just like eating and health, and nutrition, education. There is a basic human need to know that we come from somewhere. To know where we come from. To believe that there's a creator. To believe that, that we didn't spring out of nowhere. So everybody wants to believe in God. If a person doesn't, or a person says they don't, it's absolutely because of either some shallow addiction or habits that they 
would be happy if you could help them shake it, or it's because of a past trauma or some experience. But it can't be that a person is an ultra-Orthodox atheist based on uh, ideological premises alone. It's not possible, unnatural. So, the, so the, Avram sees this in people and he nurtures it. And that's why it was okay that he, so to speak, bribed them to do the mitzvah because he wasn't bribing them to do something that he wanted. He wasn't an evangel- evangelist. He wasn't bribing them to do something so that he could put a notch in his, in his gun. He was bribing them to do what he believed they wanted to do and how right he was. Look how the world responded. The overwhelming majority of the world today considers it the normal, natural state to believe in one God and not to believe in little statues and statuettes and, and idols. So you see the world wanted it. and The world had been there and it wasn't natural and he helped the world discover it. Now, let's go to page 72. This is from the Rebbe, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he says, Ayid, I'm going to read the Yiddish because it's so rich, and then we'll go to the English. Ayid, in welchen matzev ezol dich gefinnen, hotter aneshame. No matter what circumstances a Jew is in, the Jew has an neshama. Nefesh ha'elikis, a godly soul. Vos far is gam b'shasachet is a reitz elias mi Yisrael v'reitz hu lasis kol amitzus v'chulu. That's why the Rambam rules in his book of Jewish law that even when a, a person is doing something wrong, he doesn't want to be doing it. He wants to do what is right. But people are slaves to their own habits, People are slaves to their own uh, weaknesses. And they themselves resent themselves when they can't get themselves to do what's right. And that is because they have a neshama. neshama. The neshama is a a live and well, a spark of godliness inside of them. And therefore, it's not possible that that a person with a neshama becomes entirely soulless. He has a soul. Deribah is the shavida not in sein So therefore, if you break through his resistance, you've not broken him. On the contrary, you have only now awoken him. What you've broken is this moss that has grown on him or her for whatever reason, but that's not what he or she even wants. The rolling stone gathereth no moss, but this stone has not been rolling for many years and wants to shake off the dust. So do what you can to break through the resistance because the resistance is not him. What you're breaking through is the most external manifestation of the person. Because inside, deep inside, he's good. Even before you break through the resistance, he is already good. He is good, or she is good. And they need somebody to help them sense that, feel it, make it tangible. Therefore, is the Shvidas Achumrius Tachlisa to Gaidim Zain, as on this Galaver in the Pnimis, well, he is showing do by M. You are not trying to change the person, and these, this is the key. You're not trying to change the person. It's not nice to try to change a person. <coughs> nobody, 
Nobody likes when people try to change them. Nobody likes it. It's not nice. But what is nice is when you try to help a person discover whom they really are. Not because you want them to be different. You have no right. You have no right to, to have an opinion on how somebody else should live their life. But if you, if you know that they want something and they have a hard time with it, then yeah, you help and you break through it. Every drill sergeant does it. Every principal and teacher does it. Every physical trainer does it. If, if, if they know that what you want is deeper than what you are saying, then they will ignore what you're saying. If you say, I've had enough, and they know that you don't mean it. Yeah, sure, there's a lazy part of you that means it, but that's not even you. A person who tries to help people break a bad habit, a guy says, I want to stop smoking. Can you help me? Yes, I can help you. And I will ignore you every time you change your mind and say, you know what, I changed my mind, I don't want to stop. Of course you want to stop. So the Rebbe's, uh, the Rebbe's what he's teaching here is that you're not, you're not allowed to try to change people. But you are obligated, not even allowed, you are obligated to try to help people discover their truest, deepest, and greatest self. And so therefore we come to the conclusion on uh, modern day life. Assimilation, Jewish assimilation, is not something that any Jew has the right to treat with cynicism or, you know, nimby. Hey, if they don't want to be religious, if they don't want to believe in God, if they don't want to keep Shabbos, if he doesn't want to put on tefillin, if they don't want to put their kids in a Jewish school, it's not my business to tell them differently. Of course it's your business. How do you think we came so, so far? How do you think we've, we've reached such a low uh, uh, valley in, in assimilation? With everybody looking at each other and saying, yeah, you know, do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good. Do whatever, do whatever makes you happy. What favor did we do to people? Somebody once said a, a, a wonderful metaphor. There was a town that had a watchtower. And the watchtower was like 30 feet up in the air and the, and the clock was very high up. And everybody in the town set their watches by that clock. And therefore, everybody was always on time to every meeting, and everybody was always on the same page because everybody set their clock to that clock. One day a new mayor came to town, and he felt bad. He felt bad that people should have to crane their necks. People should have to crane their necks to look at the clock. It's not nice. So what did he do? He had his workers go and lower the clock down, halfway down the tower, so people will only have to look a little bit. The next mayor said, oh, I see. Look how people loved the previous mayor. They don't have to crane their necks anymore. Lowered it down even more until one Chacham came and lowered it down to eye level. Now you don't even have to crane your neck at all. You don't have to make any effort. You just look straight ahead and you set your, your, clock, your watch by the clock. Of course, what ended up happening? It's right in front of everybody. So one Chacham after another. Instead, Why should I change my watch to fit the clock? So everybody started changing the clock to fit their watch. It's right here. Change the clock. Why should I change the watch? So everybody, so one guy moved it five minutes ahead. Another guy comes, moves it five minutes back. This guy moves it back. Move, move, move. Everybody's moving it. Eventually the clock broke. And nobody, knew they couldn't find something in common. They didn't have some common denominator to set their time. And the, the unity and the, the, and was broken and they weren't on the same page anymore. 
it's a, the depth of this metaphor is so wonderful because the unity was much more valuable than the than the than the little uh, uh, petty pleasure of not having to crane your neck. So the idea that oh you know what if Yiddishkeit bothers you Judaism bothers you belief in God bothers you okay don't worry about it don't worry about it let's bring it down do whatever you want with it change it up change it this way that way everybody do it your way everybody have it your way and it'll be great and what happened now it's broken now the Jewish community is is shattered into a million pieces nobody can agree on anything and we don't even have a common place to start because of the foolish kindness of people that said, let everybody be themselves. That's leadership. That's kindness. Imagine if a principal of Calabasas High School said that. What do we have to give everybody textbooks and everybody has to follow this textbook and everybody has to follow the standard and everybody has to get a high score? Let everybody read what they want, learn what they want, excel at what they want. Let everybody uh, just you know, decide what test score is considered to be a passing grade. Let everybody decide. We don't want to stress anybody out. And they, and they would be lauded as, as uh, pantheons of kindness and compassion. Well, what, were you, what are you doing? You're indulging a person's shallow desire at the expense of the person's deepest desire. Isn't that akin, though, to what was done several, gener- uh, not several, maybe one generation back with everyone gets a participation trophy, there is no winner, we all showed up, Listen, we all get a first place. If we want, when, you, when it comes to applying these ideas, everybody can apply it in their own experience, in their own minds, because we get into politics and we'll get into the... Everybody, everybody has to apply it in their own mind. But for Judaism, for Yiddishkeit, we cannot be callous to our fellow Jews and say, oh, I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable. We are responsible for each other. And I can tell you from experience, and, and I think most people can tell you from experience, the joy that a person discovers when they are given a chance to experience Yiddishkeit when they are given a chance to have a Shabbos, to put on tefillin, to daven, if it's, done, if it's done respectfully, and it's done kindly, and it's done with dignity, what's there not to love? I'm not talking about forcing, but, uh, but, uh, but there's nothing wrong with applying a little pressure. There's nothing wrong. And if a person objects, then you can back off. But the idea that you're not going to try to sell it, why would you not? If, if we can't sell Judaism to our fellow Jews, then, then who can we sell it to? If we cannot try to educate one another on how to be better at who we are, then, then, then who can we educate? And we've come now to a point where we're much more interested in changing the world around us, but we're not allowed to talk to fellow Jews about anything. So in Israel, they're trying to make peace for the last 80 years with every Arab terrorist in the region, but they're not allowed to talk about making peace between Jewish people. That maybe the secular and the religious, and maybe these, the community and that community, maybe we should learn to get along with each other because you're not allowed to say anything uncomfortable to your fellow Jew. Everyone has to just let, them, let everyone be what they want. It's not a favor for the community. It's not a favor for anybody. The truest kindness that, that every parent knows and every teacher knows and everybody that had a parent or has a parent knows is that what you really want, you need someone who loves you to nudge you along in the path towards what you really need and what you really want. And now we go back to the original statement. Chabad has been comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable since 1776. Because really that is the mitzvah that Jews have to each other. If someone is disturbed, 
you bring them comfort. And if somebody is too comfortable, the kindest thing you can do is wake them up to the fact that they're only living half of their potential and they, are, and they could be so much greater, their life could be so much deeper, richer, happier, more meaningful. And if, and if I'm not going to do it and if you're not going to do it, then who's going to do it? Or as the famous saying goes, who will be the Zaydis of our children if not we? Excellent. Thank you.